Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. I'm your host, John Corker. Coming up on today's show, Radio Rounds contributor Imran Ali goes behind the scenes at the wildly popular Dr. Oz show. Imran speaks with the show's clinical director, Michael Hoagland, a fascinating young man who also happens to be a fourth-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, I think it's our, jo- our job here. I felt it was part of my job here to really make the information, to really boil it down to what does the consumer really need to know, and then really what Dr. Oz is good at is you know, giving it some sort of meaning to the viewer where they want to change. So they bring kind of an emotional aspect to it because, like Dr. Oz has said, that you're really not going to get your patients to change if they don't feel anything. So if they don't want to change, he has a special way of sort of getting the information into a format and a medium that makes you want to change your health for the better. More from our behind-the-scenes look at the Dr. Oz Show right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. I'm John Corker. Last week, we featured the second installment in our series from Pulse, Voices from the Heart of Medicine. Radio Rounds host Imran Ali narrated Deja Vu, a first-person account of author Dr. Jason Sanders' captivating experiences practicing primary care medicine in New York City. Imran is back again this week as he goes behind the scenes at the Dr. Oz Show, a nationally syndicated medical talk show hosted by cardiothoracic surgeon and TV personality Dr. Mehmet Oz. Imran catches up with fourth-year medical student Michael Hoagland, who secured himself a unique and interesting opportunity as the show's clinical director. Now, putting on a show of this magnitude with medical accuracy takes a large team, and it begins just like morning rounds in a hospital. The conversation begins with Michael showing Imran around backstage as Dr. Oz and his crew prepare to begin a live recording. You're entering the studio right now. Pretty lively place. So, uh, as you can see, we're sort of in between segments right now, getting ready for, uh, you know, where we're going to place things, where the camera angle's going to be. Dr. Oz is right there, studying his scripts. Sure. We're starting with some of the best info I'm given on belly fat. The best info that I've given on belly fat. So what's a typical day like for you here? You come in in the morning. Well, on taping days, which are, we tape six shows a week during mm-hmm. taping days. We have three weeks on and then one week off. We call our dark week. So we kind of plan for the next cycle. So right. it's a four-week cycle. Right. So in a week of taping, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, we taped two shows a day at 10 and at 3. And um, so on those days, I would come in at 7 a.m. and uh, meet in his dressing room. And at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. sharp, we start... Uh, briefing him on the scripts. So he's already read through the scripts once, okay. like a rough draft over the weekend. I see. He has somewhat of an idea, but the morning of is when the sort of the latest editions are gone over. You know, we have a briefing note that's been written by someone on our medical team, so if it's my show, I'll write mm-hmm. that briefing note. Right. And the briefing note is kind of the main body of knowledge for the show. For oh, that I got you. Show. So, because you know, he's a heart surgeon, so right, of course. He, if we're doing something on urology or dermatology, right. we have to 
kind of brief him on what the latest is there. Definitely, so definitely. We, uh, so that those documents can be up to 30 pages in Wow, length. 30 pages. And they're yeah. like an official document for the show, so they have to be pretty well researched and, and you know, sourced and everything. Mm-hmm. So... He's at that point of the morning briefing. He's usually read the briefing note right. pretty thoroughly, and he has an incredible memory. And uh, so we go over the scripts. We read through sort of the tough parts of the script. He kind of just he'll throw out something that just doesn't seem right to him, or he'll add things that came up. And I'll sort of add things that the producer made like a last minute change at midnight, and it you know to try to beef up the show, and it's not right. medically accurate or by any stretch. I'll just sort of kill it from the show, uh, or a doctor. Roswell too, and that's uh, that's morning briefing. So it's oh. about two hours in the morning. So it's just like morning rounds, like at, yeah. at a hospital. <laughs> morning rounds. All the producers are there in his dressing room for that show, going through the scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, supervising producers there. Right. The executive producers are there. So it's a, it's a pretty formal. You know, call it a briefing, but it's a pretty formal meeting. So where do you stand during so the actual show? So it's a show that, that I'm assigned to. So right. I'm assigned to like about a third of the shows. Right. But this one is not one of my shows. But mm-hmm. I would be basically, you know, on the floor making sure that uh, everything that is, is set up in a you know, medically sensible, accurate right. way. Right. Right. Now, when it comes to information out there, I know patients are thirsty and often rely on the TV and Internet for their health information. Some patients actually make their decisions based on what they hear in the media. Uh, Now, there are some instances where there is misinformation. Uh, Sarah Masters, who was the vice president and editor-in-chief of Reuters Health, uh, alluded to this. She is quoted to say that she is disheartened sometimes by the current trends in medical journalism where there is more of an infotainment angle mm-hmm. to health stories and topics in the media. Where do you see the direction of health in, on TV going? Like health news and health in the media going? Well, I think the viewer is going to demand accurate information, so it's up to places like the medical unit, like we have here, like CNN has, like some of the outlets have, that they have a medical unit of medical professionals who know how to interpret the information and not just sensationalize this, the, the one that sounds scary. So, I mean, for example, a few years ago, there was, I remember, two studies on how coffee causes miscarriages that came out in the same month, and one said that the that coffee causes miscarriages. One said that there's no relation. And if you look at the one that had miscarriages, it turns out that they asked the mother who just had a miscarriage how much coffee she drank. Oh so there's your recall bias. And then the other study, they asked they asked all the, all the mothers before they had the miscarriage. So they asked how much they coffee they drank, and they showed no relation. But of course, all the news outlets picked up on the yeah. more sensational one, which turns out it was a poorly designed study. So you need somebody in in these medical units of you know, where they're reporting this information to sort of understand the basics of what makes a good uh, clinical study. And that's where you learn how to sort of deal with clinical data, the very basics of it, and how to turn that into news in the, in the right way. Well, I've spoke to some people in the health health news media, and they told me that, like, as you say, health has been sensationalized sometimes. And sometimes the journalists who report on on health news are not qualified to interpret study conclusions. Now, we have meteorologists on air who are AMS certified, certified by the American Meteorological Society. As a future physician, do you think that it might be a good idea to also certify reporters who work with health news? I think it would be a great idea. You know, there's not all weathermen, weatherwomen are AMS certified, so it's almost like not all doctors are board certified. So, you know, you can choose to flip to the 
meteorologist who you know knows how to interpret the weather data and report it accurately and you can choose to go to a doctor who's board certified you can choose to listen to your health reporter who's certified in looking at studies properly so i mean i think you know if you're working for a news outlet that doesn't have a, a medical unit with medical professionals that normally deal with this stuff i think if there was a way to sort of work with maybe the american college of healthcare journalists or some mm-hmm. organization that would be willing to train people how to do this i think it's a great idea and then that would give the viewers a way a reason to tune into that particular reporter mm. i mean more and more physicians have embraced the media like dr raz dr sanjay gupta nancy snyderman nbc news and dr richard besser of abc news has this influx of reporting actually added to the onslaught of information that confuses patients out there or has it made it simpler for the public to make sense of it all I think that it's made it, given the public a way for there to be a curator for the information, a way to filter out all the noise. Well, I think it's our our job here. I felt it was part of my job here to really make the information, to really boil it down to what does the consumer really need to know, and then really what Dr. Oz is good at is, you know, giving it some sort of meaning to the viewer where they want to change. So they bring kind of an emotional aspect to it because, like Dr. Oz has said, that you're really not going to get your patients to change if they don't feel anything. So if they don't want to change, he has a special way of sort of getting the information into a format and a medium that makes you want to, you know, change your health for the better. So I think that's the job of these healthcare professionals that are on the news is to find the pieces of all the information out there that are relevant to the viewer and that you can actually make some sort of positive change. So you took in a sabbatical from medical school to work on the Dr. Oz show. So you seem like you're really passionate about this field, media, informatics. What do you see yourself doing after medical school? Do you see yourself coming back to this area, going to residency, seeing patients, a traditional practice? What do you see yourself, I say, in six years from now? I think uh, I I want to definitely finish residency. I I want to see patients, for sure. I mean, that's kind of what I signed up to do in this whole medical training road. So it's definitely a big part of what I want to do. But I think there's a lot of opportunities now to do sort of have a sort of a hobby within medicine where you can see patients for a certain percentage and then either do another clinical sort of specialty or work in uh, public health, work in policy, work in uh, in media, and just really get the right messages out there. So I think a big positive of working in a place like this is you're able to work to get some of the right messages out there because you have sort of a way to get kind of get rid of some of the misconceptions of health. And I think that's important that you can reach a lot of people to get the right messages out versus seeing one patient at a time, mm-hmm. which is also great, but you're not reaching as many people. Right. You're not telling as many people the right you know, messages about health. So I think it's going to be a hybrid of clinical and you know, either media or public health work. Right. Now, you also traveled abroad, and you also worked in the media. So what do you see abroad with a lot of lack of public health education? Do you see the need for the media to branch out internationally? I think the media is, is critical abroad as well. I mean, some parts of Africa, they only have a radio or a cell phone, and whatever you get out on that medium is whatever they're going to read and, or see and, uh, and know. Mm-hmm. So... I think any opportunity for us to get sort of the right health messages out abroad, you know, I think we are doing that in some way, but is is going to be beneficial to to the health of 
of, of the world. I just want to ask you about, go back to the beginning, your undergraduate years. Where did you go for undergrad? Uh, well, I went to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. So I, it's my first sort of foray outside of California. And so you're from California originally? I am, San Diego, born and raised, and wanted to sort of experience four seasons and experience Chicago and had a blast at Northwestern. So I studied engineering there. Okay, you studied engineering. Did you think about going into biomedical engineering or just... I did. I entered biomedical engineering. So I, I, it just seemed like the ideal fit for what I, my interests were, at least right out of high school. I mean, I wanted to pursue medicine for most of my life, but then I kind of wanted to pursue more technology. and So I felt medicine was a way to sort of, you know, design widgets to help heal people, use widgets to help heal people, and, and to sort of really combine art and science into a field that was probably most rewarding to a curious guy like me, I guess. You spent some time abroad in South Africa. Tell me about it. What did you do there, and what did you see that was lacking like you wanted to improve on? Yeah, I, my fifth year, so engineers were generally never encouraged to go abroad for, for the most part, but mm -hmm. they had a new study abroad program, and I always wanted to study abroad. I, I loved traveling, and I liked right. getting outside of my comfort zone a lot, so I heard about this opportunity in the engineering school to go to South Africa. We had a partnership with the University of Cape Town and in, in their biomedical engineering program, so mm -hmm. I jumped on that my fifth and final year at Northwestern, so it was a very interesting place to learn science and engineering, mm -hmm. um, so I took you know, design courses there, but my senior capstone project was the to design a low-cost digital x-ray system. And the reason was we found that like two-thirds of people outside of Cape Town who needed an x-ray didn't have access to an x-ray. It's something very basic. In terms of like 60% of diagnoses in, in some figure required an x-ray. So there's a lot of people that just couldn't so was get... was in the outer towns outside of Cape Town in Johannesburg? Not, not the main... Yeah, this is, this is mostly... And this goes for really all of Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. So not just South Africa. But... There, yeah, we're, we're talking mostly outside of the cities. Right. Even though the cities don't have great access for everyone, everyone who lives in the city is usually close to a medical center of some sort. But we're talking more out, outside the city, which is the vast majority of, of the country mm -hmm. and, and the region, where you can't, within a few miles, you don't have access to, you know, very good medical care, let alone an x-ray. So, mm. you know, I met a guy who swallowed a bottle cap and he was barely breathing and he had to go travel 100 miles on a bumpy road mm -hmm. to get to an x-ray. 100 and, miles? Yeah. And so obviously you worry that oh, God. did it lodge further. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, it just shows there was a great need for simple imaging. You founded the World Health Imaging Telemedicine Informatics Alliance. When you started that, I mean, what was your initial vision beyond just providing affordable imaging? Well, I, I saw it as a way to sort of get connectivity in healthcare, like to get mm -hmm. us to be able to get people more access, more people access to care in a low-cost way because if you think about it, you can you get everyone access to digital x-rays. You can... Right. The radiologists don't need to be in that country. I mean, there are some countries in Africa that have zero radiologists. Oh, yeah. um, but you think about it, radiologists don't really need to examine the exactly. patient. We were trying to think of ways where you could actually create like an international sort of night hawk 
service that was sort of, they, people did it in kind, so residents would read images remotely of digital images that were taken in the developing world. And you can do it with photos, too, like for dermatology. Hmm. So is this spreading beyond Africa? Is it in other countries, too? So I was on the board for, I founded it, and I was on the board for three years, and we uh, then got to partner with a social venture capital firm who is now actually foraying it to use it domestically. So now they're actually domestic parts of Chicago that don't have access to TV screening. And so there's a new initiative with uh, WIDIA, the World Health Imaging Telemedicine and Informatics Alliance, to uh, use some of our know-how to help our own country, too. So... So that's kind of the latest with that. Mm. I know many medical students and residents are so busy just trying to get through their coursework, exams, war duties. How does one go about starting an organization like you did, uh, you know, such as the World <coughs> Health Imaging Telemedicine Informatics Alliance? It sounds like a daunting thing. I mean, how, how do you devote time to that? Well, you're right. It's, it's something you can't really do in medical school proper. So I actually did it before medical school. I, mm. I actually deferred my admission. So I, when I got into Penn, I, and I, this was kind of brewing, mm. if you will. So I asked to defer my admission a year to help get this off the ground. And, um, and I was working for Accenture as well. So it was something that was, it was a challenge. I had to work on on the weekends for the most part. Yeah. Um, I had to do a lot of things on Friday as a consultant to, you, know, you sort of get Fridays to be to sort of do your own thing in, in the home office mm-hmm. so I would schedule meetings near the Accenture Chicago office and so it was just kind of a for two years that was kind of how I operated but once you get to med school you got to really be uh, focused on <laughs> I that. I know I've been there. <laughs> yeah you know and I know and I got I gotten in trouble for taking on too many things in med school too. So I mean, speaking of information I'd like to ask you I'm sure as young doctors and young and students we are bombarded by the flood of so much information out there that it's hard to keep up to date sometimes, no pun intended. How do you see the future of information technology in medical education? I think it's something that's integrated, should be integrated in education. It's, it should be something that's so integrated that you don't even really have to talk about it. You know, we don't spend enough time right now as medical students understanding how to deal with data, understanding how to deal with, how to think about a medical record and right. how how you can structure the information in a way to really help a lot of patients, help all your patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, if you have an electronic medical record and you can look at all of the lab results over time for all of your patients, you can look at trends, you can look at uh, trends for a single patient for all of your patients and start drawing conclusions about treatments and things that are going on. Thank you so much, Mike, for your time. It's been a Thank pleasure you. having you on Radio Rounds. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Radio Rounds, and I'm John Corker. That was fourth-year medical student and Dr. Oz clinical director, Michael Hoagland. We hope you'll join us for rounds next week, as we are proud to feature Dr. Neil Shaw, founder of Cost of Care. Dr. Shaw is currently a chief resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital. Prior to starting residency, he created the not-for-profit organization Costs of Care, with the goal of empowering patients and their caregivers to deflate medical bills. His views on the role of physicians in healthcare spending have been quoted in the New England Journal of Medicine, the New York Times, ABC Television, National Public Radio, and many other outlets. To find out more, listen in next week and check out www.costofcare.org. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds 
or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, sponsored by the American Medical Association, providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Find out answers to your questions about medical school or residency programs. Ask questions in our online forums and get answers quickly. It's fast, easy, and available now at studentdoctor.net. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or of the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor.